Christian, talk us through your outfit today. Um, I am surpri- unsurprisingly wearing all black today. I have a black t-shirt with some black jeans and black boots and a black overcoat. Most of this is actually thrifted and I have a black ring on as well. I don't know that I've ever seen you dressed in anything but all black. Um, occasionally I do wear a bit of yellow and white, mostly white I think is the other color, but also Elias, you are also in all black. Yeah, that's true. I'm guilty as charged. Um, thanks for coming on the show today, Christian. We're going to be talking about attacks on us water systems. And later in the show, we got an interview with Justin Sherman on data privacy issues. That's coming up next on safe mode. Welcome to safe mode. I'm Elias Grohl, senior editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. My name is Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode, and I'm joined today by Christian Vasquez. Reporter at CyberScoop. Hey, Christian. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You've been reporting recently on attacks on U.S. water systems, Mm -hmm. Um, most prominently an attack on a system in Pennsylvania. Talk us through what's happened here. Yeah. So what happened was around, um, I think it was Saturday, this local station, Saturday, November the 18th, this local station reported that... Local television station. Local television station. Yes, yes. Reported that a, uh, um, I can never say this word right, municipal water facility in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, um, got hit with a cyber attack that was essentially um, some group got in, changed a industrial computer and had a very scary image saying that you've been hacked. Um, and this was, you know, reminiscent of a previous small water claim in Oldsmar, Florida and other small water hits that has happened. So this was kind of an interesting thing. Um, it turned out to be uh, a really kind of interesting group that call themselves a cyber avengers that has been linked to uh the iranian islamic revolutionary guard corp and they've been actually targeting the specific type of uh industrial computer called uh unitronics programmable logic controller uh the the brand is unitronics they're from israel um their headquarters there and that's actually what they're attacking and it's kind of unclear if they were intentionally going after just water facilities because another brewery got hit with the same program so it kind of seemed like they're they were targeting these israeli um equipment and led to incidentally a u.s water facility being impacted by this and was forced to go manual after that so what happened in pennsylvania as i understand it right was a a computer was infiltrated in a pumping facility Mm -hmm. at this water management agency basically which is the organization that provides clean water to a rural area of Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah, yeah. What what happened here? Actually, like talk us through in this pumping station that had its computer breached. What happened exactly? Yeah, yeah. so it's essentially it, it's a pumping station. It's a remote pumping station that monitors the water pressure for these two townships that are close to them, and collectively, it's about seven thousand people for that. Um, and what happened was there was specific. Um, programmable logic controller, which is essentially an industrial computer. It kind of changes input depending on, you know, the physical data that comes in, like, you know, how how much pressure is it? And if there's this much pressure, it'll lower, increase it. A bit more complicated than that, but that's essentially what it is. Um, 
that got hit and what they essentially just did was show an image on it. it does not clear they did anything beyond that like go into any kind of operations fiddle with any of the levers or anything like that but you know if you're a water facility and you see something that says pops up on your screen that you've been hacked you're going to take that device down so they took it down um, they went to manual operations and that's actually about it that that happened for that facility there wasn't any kind of impact to water service um, customers got their clean water everything was fine except for you know that kind of inconvenience of having to go to this water pump and now kind of operate it manually so we're it's about a week and a half after this initial incident happened do we know at this point how many water facilities in the u.s have actually been impacted no, we, we don't. And the uh, a government official has said that it's in the single digits, so less than 10. But it's it's going to be a difficult thing because you actually have to have these water facilities come forth and say, hey, we um, got impacted by this specific thing because it is not a requirement for uh, critical infrastructure sectors like water. Um, specifically specifically water right now um, to report these kind of incidents. So the government kind of has to hope that people come and tell them. But right now we don't actually know anything beyond less than 10 for water facilities. And then a couple of, like I said, a, brewer a brewery, there were some local reports that an aquarium got hit as well. But like those are also, um, you know, it, it's not super clear anything beyond those. Is the beer flowing again at that Pittsburgh brewery that yeah, got hit? Yeah, yeah. They're up it's, and running it's, again. It's great. It's going. It's okay, going fine. They did not. They did not impact the water or the beer. So. Okay, great. All right, yeah. we should go. We should go to the brewery and uh, sample their wares and then see if the Iranians have undermined <laughs> yeah. the beer supply. Yeah, I think if the Iranians are coming after our national supply of beer, I think. I mean, water. Water's there's one thing. Yeah, there's no greater crisis. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about the uh, group in question here. You mm -hmm. talked about, you mentioned them briefly, the Cyber Avengers. Mm -hmm. They're linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. Mm -hmm. Their attack comes in the aftermath of Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, we've seen a lot of activity in cyberspace. We talked about it on the pod on multiple occasions. And the Cyber Avengers are one of these groups that have popped up trying to carry out opportunistic attacks in the mm -hmm. aftermath, trying to kind of undermine Israel's sense of security. How seriously should we take these guys? Yeah, it's it's like a really interesting question because these are mostly like 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 you just mentioned more about the perception of Israel technology rather than, you know, we're trying to take down your water. So it, it's kind of a unique situation where it didn't seem like they were going to actually try to have an impact on the operations, but rather just create enough scary headlines to have that kind of impact instead. But at the same time, you know, you don't want a nation <laughs> nation state to kind of be able to go into your water facilities that easily all these uh devices were kind of easily online so it, it, it's kind of one of two things like on, on the one hand it doesn't appear that they were trying to do anything you know to impact operations but on the other hand um it, it was such an easy kind of get for them that really speaks to the state of water facilities in the U.S. right now, which are not regulated, which we have talked about in the past, on the on the podcast before as well. So it, it's like, you know, it's we shouldn't worry about, you know, this campaign train off the water supplies or anything like that really too much. But it is a really big concern that this was very easily done. Um, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, said that essentially all these uh 
uh, PLCs, the Unitronics devices, was on default security. So the password was 1111. <laughs> it was on an open internet. It was Great. just, yeah, very, very easy. Uh, the cyber vendors are not known for sophistication. They've actually lied several times about like these big hacks, quote unquote hacks. Actually, in October, they claimed to um, hit um, Israeli Dorad private power station, which they did not. They actually lifted those fixtures from another uh, group that actually did the work. Um, so, you know, this particular group, it's not too sophisticated, but that also kind of speaks to the, you know, lack of uh, serious uh, cybersecurity defenses in our water sector, which is a bigger concern. Yeah. Last question on this. The Biden administration has been trying to address security in the water sector. Mm-hmm. Attacks like this are an indication of how severe this yeah. problem is, mm-hmm. where you have industrial control systems with default passwords facing the internet of 1111 and Iranian hacking groups breaking into them. Like Even if the consequences of this attack were not very severe, like this isn't good. So mm-hmm. what's the state of play right now with, with water regulation? Um, maybe for folks who missed some of our earlier conversations about this, where do we stand today? Right, right. So right now, um, there is no regulations for the water sector, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is for the, the cybersecurity regulation. For the cybersecurity, yes, 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 yes. yes, yes yeah. right. We, we, this is cybersecurity. We talk cyber. Yep. So this is all about cybersecurity regulations. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency um, is the sector risk management agency for the water and wastewater sector. They kind of try to go down a route and have regulations through sanitation surveys, which is essentially making sure the water is clean and everything is good on on the more physical side of things like just clean um, water. But Republican-led states and um, several trade groups sued against the EPA, saying that they went over their bounds, went past their authority. EPA stepped back. So right now we're kind of at square one. The Biden administration is pressuring um, Congress to give EPA some more authorities. Meanwhile, the trade groups kind of have their own idea of a like industrial and uh, industry led kind of a route, which they are also pressing Congress to do. So it's kind of unclear whether what the final result is going to look like. Either it's going to be something similar to the electricity subsector where you have an industry led kind of. Uh, regulations, or if this is going to be more, you know, top down from EPA to say, these are the regulations you can follow, kind of like what's happened with, with uh, the Transportation Security Agency over administration over um, with the pipelines. Got it. Okay. Well, in the interim, we'll continue to write about Iranian hacking groups breaching our breweries and our (laughs) (laughs) water agencies and we'll continue to uh, report on that as that happens thank you so much for your reporting on this christian and for coming on the show thank you for having me up next on safe mode i'm joined by the tech policy researcher justin sherman to talk about data brokers everywhere we go in the world we generate data and that data is increasingly for sale with major ramifications for privacy and security justin sherman has done groundbreaking work to investigate the data broker industry and my interview with him is up next I'm joined today by Justin Sherman, a senior fellow at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. To be a person in the world today is to have your data collected, whether it's your internet browsing history, your location history as you walk around with your phone in your pocket, or the purchases you make online, there's few human activities today that aren't in one way or another tracked. So what happens with all that data once it's collected? 
increasingly it's being bundled with other data and sold as part of large data sets by firms in the data broker industry. Justin Sherman has done groundbreaking work to understand this industry, and he joins us today to talk about how personal data is being bought and sold. Justin, welcome to Safe Mode. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off by ask, talking a bit about the data broker industry writ large. For folks who might not be familiar with the industry, what is it, how big is it, and what does it offer its clients? Obviously, lots of companies of all types and sizes collect data. The data broker industry is mainly differentiated by the sale of data. That's kind of the, the key piece here, right? So whereas you know some companies might collect data to use it internally to market to their customers or might uh, do research with that data or something of that sort, data brokers really make their money from selling that data. They take it, they package it, they aggregate it, they link it with other data points, and they sell that to everyone from law enforcement to uh, insurance companies to advertisers, uh, as well as some some malicious actors. So this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, it operates in the U.S. It also operates globally. There are thousands of U.S. companies involved in this practice. And uh, perhaps the most important point is that despite the fact that most of us have never heard of any of these companies before, these companies collect data on virtually every single American, uh, whether that's health, politics, or something else. So it's a really, really uh, expansive ecosystem. And again, the sale is kind of the, the differentiating piece there. Mm. So who are some of the big players in this space? I mean, there's some household name companies that folks will recognize, but might not know are also data brokers, right? Right. The consumer credit reporting agencies with which uh, many consumers are familiar, Equifax uh, and, and TransUnion and so on, are data brokers. Uh, I refer to them as regulated data brokers in some ways because a portion of their activities are regulated when it comes to credit reporting, but that's an example of a data broker activity. You compile a bunch of loan and financial information about people, use that to calculate a score, you sell that information. Uh, there are companies that people may have heard of that are thought of as tech companies, but are not necessarily known to sell data, even though they do. So Oracle is one example. Oracle is a multi-billion dollar tech company, of course, and has a bunch of different things it does. It builds software. It has cloud services. One other thing Oracle does is they sell lots of data. And uh, about 10 years ago, made a pivot towards data brokerage and bought in the last decade, by some estimates, seven or eight dozen different uh, companies involved in this activity and have sort of built that up as a revenue stream. So those are some of the more recognizable ones. And then others, likely most people have never heard of in their life. Uh, it's companies like Axiom uh, that gather data on billions with a B of people globally and sell it. Uh, companies like Verisk that entirely specialize in selling to insurance companies. They collect data on neighborhood uh, crime and fires and flooding and all kinds of other things and sell it to insurance companies. So um, again, a pretty varied, varied space, but most of the companies are not household names. So if I were to be a client of a data broker and were to go to one of these firms and, and try to, you know, answer questions about, let's say, a, a demographic of people that I'm, that I'm interested in. Like, what are the kind of categories of data that I might be able to enter, you know, purchase on, about 
the people that I'm interested in, let's say I want to sell something to a certain group of people, right? Like what could I reasonably buy about a person? You can buy most things you can think of, not all, but most things you can think of about a person. And I'll talk a little bit more about sometimes the difference between what you can buy if you're a person versus a company. But uh, data brokers gather and sell data on people's health and mental health conditions. Uh, that might be the prescriptions you take. That might be surgical procedures you've had. That might be specific conditions, whether that's uh, if someone's suffering from depression or alcoholism, whether or not they have a family history of, of heart attacks or they have erectile dysfunction. Uh, you can buy all kinds of political data and campaigns do this, which is maybe an interesting discussion point, but you can buy everything basically about people's campaign contributions, about their interest in pick literally any issue, guns, the environment, immigration, uh, as well as basic details like is someone a registered Republican voter in this state or they a registered Democrat in this state. Uh, you can buy a wealth of demographic data, so things like race, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexual orientation, marital status, even information on your children, uh, as well as I keep going on and on, but as well yeah, as yeah. Uh, things, we things like point, right? yeah, yeah exactly, we get, we get right. the point. And the last the last one I'll mention is location. Yeah. Um, is lots uh, a massive and growing market for phone location data. To some extent, this is starting to spread into car location data, which is very mm. concerning. Um, so yes, yeah, so you can you can basically buy whatever you want. And the last thing I'll say, which I referenced uh, a minute ago, is the difference in purchasing. So some yeah. things as an individual, I realistically can't do. I can't go buy you know, your uh, genetic profile from some website just by putting in my credit card. Mm. But there are companies that sell genetic information. They just do it to research centers or uh, health companies or pharma. So um, really, it's it's a whole lot of data that's out there for sale. Right. And even if you can't target an individual person within a given data set, it, it, because the companies claim that this data has been anonymized, right, there's also quite sophisticated techniques to try to de-anonymize data that's purchased, right? Exactly. And this is, I've, I'm, uh, and apologies if anyone's heard me do this before because I ramble about this all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, anonymization is, uh, and I always annoy certain lawyers when I say this, but anonymization is not a technically, you know, meaningful and specific term, right? They're mm. really, you know, there are really important privacy protective techniques for data, like differential privacy. Right, where basically you obscure individual data points in a data set, but still have it be useful for machine learning. So if I open it up, I won't see, you know, Justin Sherman's age or income or something like that, but I can still analyze the data usefully. So there are important things like that 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 more responsible companies do. But this notion, as you as you got at, that taking a name out of a data set or taking an SSN out of a data set, a social security number out of a data set is enough to prevent someone from linking it back to a person is ridiculous. It's not true. Uh, and there's tons of research going back to the 90s, at least, looking at uh, issues uh, with this. And it's gotten much worse today with the amount of data and, and to techniques to aggregate data. So all to say, and then some companies do just sell data with names, um, which um, I know we'll get to. You know, Some of the research my team has done at Duke has, has underscored this, where um, there are companies that don't even purport to have anonymized data. They just will sell you health conditions and people's names 
and put that in an Excel sheet for you. Terrific. Love that. So, Excellent. yeah. Um, so let's get into your research a little bit here. And you've done great work thinking about interesting groups that you could target using data brokers, right? And your most recent report on this looked at data available on U.S. military members. You went out and bought data on U.S. service members to see what you could find. What'd you find? We did about a 12-month study looking at this question. And uh, this was catalyzed by about a year and a half earlier, me finding a bunch of data brokers advertising data about people in the military. And that's not you know, surprising to what we've talked about in terms of the scale of data collected and sold, but raised an interesting set of questions. One, what exactly is that data? And two, this is data about people in the military. So is there a national security risk that a foreign or malign actor could get access to that data for intelligence purposes, blackmail, disinformation, et cetera? So uh, we really had, had three main phases to this work. So the first is we scraped uh, over 500 data brokers' websites looking for terms like military and veteran. So not the most robust thing ever. We weren't trying to look for every possible uh, demographic under the sun, but just wanted to see what kind of hits we get and then use that to identify data sets for sale. So some of that yielded generic advertising blogs with no useful insights about the military. It also yielded specific data sets that, that folks, uh, that companies were selling, such as about military families or uh, one broker, for example, advertised a function where you could look up uh, records on dead veterans based on searching their discharge number. So, um, so we found some data sets there. And then the next two pieces I think are the most, most interesting. So we set up a .org uh, domain. We contacted a bunch of US data brokers asking to buy data about military personnel. We were not deceptive, but we were not you know, waving a flag saying, hey, we're researchers. We kept it vague, and this was part of our test to see, will a broker ask us questions? And in fact, because we couldn't be deceptive, it's a pretty low bar to trip us up just to say, no, we need specific details about you and what you're doing, and then we couldn't proceed. But we ended up buying uh, a bunch of data sets, which we can get to in a minute, uh, from those brokers through the .org about U.S. military service members with basically no vetting. Uh, one broker, for example, told us, well, hold on a minute, this is really sensitive data, uh, right? When we're talking about the military, we, you know, we kind of need to do a background check or some sort of verification if you're going to pay with a credit card, blah, 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 or you can pay by wire. I was like, well, hold on a minute. So, you know, the student's email, we just clarified. So if we pay by wire instead of credit card, we don't have to do a background check. They said, that's true. We paid by wire. We got no background check and we bought the data. So, Amazing. Um, yeah, so, so not great on that side. And the last piece uh, was, the, was phase number three. We then really wanted to narrow in on this national security risk proof of concept piece. And so we set up a .asia uh, domain and website physically uh, on, on server infrastructure, physically located in Singapore, contacted those same brokers we bought from and purely wanted to see, can we get the same data we already bought from the .org? Will they change the vetting? Even maybe not in a military sense, just saying, hey, you're not located in the US and you're buying data on US persons. Like that would be an interesting finding. Yeah. 
we were able to buy uh, the same kind of stuff, um, you know, including financial information, health conditions. Every single data set was individually identified. We bought religion. We bought information on military children and families. And through the .asia, we even geofenced it, so got data just from the areas of Fort Liberty, uh, formerly Fort Bragg, of Quantico, Virginia, of DC, uh, and the brokers physically transferred that data to our server in Singapore. So um, with with not great security, which is maybe a separate discussion point, but great. all to say, you know, <laughs> bought lots of stuff on thousands of service members, as cheap as 12 cents a service member. It's wild. Uh, it's so. just wild. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about the national security risk there a little bit. So let's say I'm a, I'm a foreign intelligence agency. Like, how do you, how do you think I could use this type of data that you're buying on, on us military service members? Yeah. So intelligence, uh, risks here are interesting, right? Because you can look at a broker and say, well, would a foreign actor find value in this versus what they already have? And how would they get it, right? Would they just hack it instead of buy it? So on the first question, this study, I think, showed that, uh, and some other studies have shown that some of the data, yes, is stuff that probably to a sophisticated foreign intelligence agency like the MSS in China or, or uh, at the expense of complementing the, the Putin regime, the SVR in Russia, um, would not find interesting or useful, right? Like who is in the military in most cases is not itself a highly classified thing. Uh, and so that's maybe not really interesting. But there is data out there and data that we did buy that is non-public, that is sensitive, and that is the kind of thing that, say, the military might not be collecting otherwise. It might not be collecting information about uh, people's gambling activities to the level that a data broker might if they sell their data to casinos. Uh, there's financial and health data that we bought that may be disclosed to the military on a clearance form or in other ways, but is not necessarily the kind of thing the military is tracking, right? I mean, the Navy you know, is not sitting there tracking every service member's purchases um, everywhere versus a data broker is. So that's kind of the first piece is there is some information there that is not already out there. And that could be useful in an Intel context. The main things I think here uh, include financial-related information, information around sexual orientation and sexual practices, and anything related to online activity. So yeah. that could include gambling. Um, that could include if someone's seeking help for addiction and that kind of thing, which is actually, you know, if you, as, as I, I do, you know, you talk to the intelligence and counterintelligence folks, that is, is really important stuff. Um, and then the second piece is, why would they get this from a broker? Uh, you know, in 2017, right, Equifax was hacked by the Chinese uh, military. Equifax is a data broker. So an interesting case where clearly the aggregation of data on hundreds of millions of people uh, has already been done. Why not go in and take it? And so there's an interesting, um, and, and you know, perhaps you have thoughts on this as well, there's an interesting kind of debate about would a foreign actor hack it or buy it? Um, you know, different folks uh, I, I engage with say different things, right? Some say, why would you buy it when you can hack it? On the other hand, right, if it's this cheap as we showed to buy it and there's no vetting, it actually probably is a lot easier to just set up a website, shoot some emails off and buy a bunch of data rather than 
you know, because everyone has resource constraints, take time away from hacking more sophisticated targets like government or defense-based contractors and spend them hacking into some company that that has data. So, um, so all to say, yeah, I, I think you know, there, if if risk at the end of the day is really about possibility and consequence, the study sh- certainly shows it's possible. And I think when you look at the kinds of data that we bought, there's a real potential consequence of having that uh, in foreign hands. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that as on your question about whether you, a foreign intelligence agency would hack that material, hack a database containing this material or just buy it outright. I mean, all of these hacking teams are super resource constrained and the the types of prices you describe in your report are super low. I mean, I think I did, I, I crunched the numbers on one of the data sets you bought, I think around 4,000 military service members, you bought it for, I think, less than a quarter per record. And I think the total data set maybe cost a thousand dollars, something like that. I mean, that's uh, compare that to the, like the salaries and the infrastructure costs of a hacking team. It's absolutely nothing. It's a completely inconsequential cost if you're a foreign actor to buy this compared to what you're exactly spending on other stuff. And, you know, which as someone managing a research budget is great that, uh, you know, from that standpoint, but it's really, really not good that it's this cheap. And, you know, at the expense of, of comparing apples and oranges, like, you know, we talk all the time about, uh, the, for instance, the Internet Research Agency in 2016 and look how cheap it was and mainly the cost piece, right? It's a different issue. Yeah. but. Look at how cheap it was for Russia to walk in the door and buy all these Facebook ads. It is ridiculously cheap to buy health data, to buy all this other stuff. Locations more expensive, which we can we can talk about uh, perhaps. But but you know, health conditions, finances, potentially even what websites are you visiting? You know, pornographic content, mm. things like that. It's very very cheap to buy. Um, yeah, so. let's talk about the location piece for a second. Is there anything stopping? Uh, folks in this space from buying, I don't know, location data on individuals coming and going from CIA headquarters? Like, what does this space look like? No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is not to say that that without reference to any specific intelligence agency, this is not to say that various groups have not taken various steps to limit these risks on their premises. That certainly, I'll just say very generally, is the case. Um, but in this study, we did contact some location data brokers. It was not, this will maybe be a separate thing, it was not our focus in this study to purchase the data, including because you could spend tens of thousands of dollars easily on a single location data set for a month, right? So mm. it's a lot more expensive. Uh, it's not that expensive in the Intel uh, yeah, agency budget. It's still not that it's, expensive. It's, it's still you know uh, couch cushion money, but... Nonetheless, it's, it's, it was outside scope. But we did at least contact a few just to see what they'd say. And for instance, we had one broker who said, you know, we can't sell you data, location data about people on military bases. And this is not due to any law because this is not illegal. It's due to just, and they didn't say that I'm saying this, but it was their internal company policy to not do so. And to their credit, one of the the you know brilliant uh, students, and I want to again shout out, you know, I I wrote, did this study and wrote the study with four uh, fantastic students on the team. So um, if you read it, you know, huge credit goes to them and their work. To their credit, one of the students said, "Can I push back on that?" I said, "Sure, okay, why not?" And so they emailed the broker and kind of said, "Oh, well, we'd really love to buy this though, and we have this budget and." 
And, um, and, you know, and if they did say, yes, we probably would have figured out uh, getting it. But uh, what ended up happening is this broker said, well, the salesperson at this broker said, okay, well, we can't give you data on people on military bases physically. But what we could do is we could sell you location data about those people and everywhere else they go. And so to your point, what a ridiculous idea that we see this dot moving around Virginia and then at 9 a.m. it goes towards Langley and then it vanishes and then at 5 p.m. it re that's maybe a, an odd work schedule for someone there. But, you know, at 5 p.m. it reappears and, oh, I wonder where they went, right? Mm. Um, and in some ways, it's actually maybe more interesting what are they doing outside of work, right? Where are they going? Are they going to off-site locations that are not known to this broker to be sensitive but are, in fact, black sites or something? Are they meeting with people? Are they mm. doing... I don't know. Do they go to a strip club? Like, is there anything that's interesting in a blackmail or something context that is maybe less interesting than someone, you know, walking in circles around a building. So, um, yeah, so it's absolutely possible. And I think that example just underscored how we can take these demographic or geography focused approaches to protections, right? We can say, you can't sell on this tiny slice, or you can't sell within this uh, circle that we draw on a map. But at the end of the day, it's actually a lot bigger than that, and the risks are a lot bigger than that. And even here, right, if you say you can't sell location data on this government building or on this military base, that still is not enough even in the national security context to prevent, uh, to, to right. mitigate at least the, the risks. Yeah, I mean, CIA employees at the end of the day are still ordinary people coming and going from the office and going about you know, their day-to-day -day lives and going grocery shopping and yep. gambling, whatever, right? All the things you mentioned. So we're in the middle of this frenetic conversation right now, or I guess heated conversation right now in Washington around data security and, and the threat posed by Chinese data collection. TikTok looms large. How, how do you think your findings about the data broker industry and the types of data that's available should kind of fit into this conversation that's happening right now in DC around limiting the availability of data to kind of foreign actors or addressing this data security threat that we're all trying to wrap our heads around? Yeah, it's a couple things. One is that privacy and national security are kind of separate conversations usually, right? The, the privacy debate in the U.S., uh, which is really important, right? And I also do work on this, but usually focuses just on consumers in a U.S. citizen sense. Domestically, what are companies doing? And doesn't also, on top of that, think about, is there a national security issue here with the sale of this data or even outside data brokers with maybe the fact that companies don't have strong data security requirements and we have way too many breaches, right? So there's that kind of gap that I think happens between those conversations and communities. The second piece, and you referenced TikTok, which is a great example here, is that there certainly are you know, risks associated with and that we should ask about certain foreign companies and governments and their tech operations. But the issue is the debate is framed only to talk about foreign actors and the issues and does not talk about how in today's world, domestic technology actors can actually be a source of national security risk, whether that's, and we can go into other things, right? Whether that's you know, is it good that there's only really three major cloud providers? Maybe, maybe that's bad for resilience, you know, stuff like that. Or in this case, 
What about the fact that there are U.S. companies who are selling the exact kinds of data that members of Congress are worried about coming through TikTok and much more and much more detailed for cheap on the open market and how that creates, and not to say they're controlled by foreign actors because they're not, but but to say that there is another source of risk there. So mm. I think just connecting it to those, the data broker security conversation to those debates is really important. And the last thing I'll say is when it comes to what would a foreign actor want? Why would they want to get it? As we've been saying, you have to look at the cost benefit of what does this actor already have? Would this data supplement that? Would it confirm that? Would it be useful in analytics, et cetera, et cetera? And you know, the TikTok debate, I think, is it's uh, I mean, um, as you and others have as well, you know, I've been writing about this for about four years now. It's kind of an interesting thing, but uh, is a bit myopic in focusing just on what can one app get and sort of taking the view that the Chinese government would be more interested in any other data source out there than to, like TikTok is the top data source, right, that they want to get yeah. at. And maybe there are some real issues there, right? There's been reporting of location accessing from China and stuff like that. But I'm not trying to make this about TikTok, but the point is, you know, broadening the lens on that and saying, where are there other pockets of risk? Where are there companies that are not responsibly preventing against data breaches? Where are there companies that are selling the data of military service members and intelligence personnel? And how does that fit into the broader, you know, cost benefit that an adversary would be would be making? All right. So are there any rules today governing the work of data brokers? This is a highly unregulated space. So there are a few federal and some state, but mainly federal laws and regulations that constrain or relate to narrow portions of data brokerage. It's a very legalistic way of saying not really. Um, and yeah. so in certain areas, for instance, with HIPAA, the uh, often referred to as the federal health privacy law, even though the P is portability, so it's really not about privacy first and foremost. But you know, for instance, if you're a hospital, I can't go sell people's medical records on the street corner. That is illegal and HIPAA. So there are some areas, right, where if you're a doctor's office, HIPAA does have lots of constraints on what you can do. We mentioned credit reporting earlier. If you're a credit reporting agency, there are certain requirements placed on you. And part of what's happening right now in the federal space is saying, what about companies that basically sell credit data but aren't covered? Like, we're going to make sure that those are covered. So in some spaces, there are regulations, but... It's largely unregulated. There is uh, basically zero control around the sale of location data at all. There is a lot of uh, regulatory gap around health data even. If you are not HIPAA covered, like many health tech apps, like many telehealth websites, you can sell health data and, and, and people do. And uh, lots of pharmacies actually, even though they're HIPAA covered, are actually allowed to sell uh, prescription and other data because of a wacky court case from about 12 years ago where that was ruled to be part of corporate free speech. So like, there are even cases where you might go to the pharmacy and assume, right, fair enough, right? You might assume, hey, I'm getting a prescription for my strep throat or a chronic illness, or maybe I'm suffering from uh, depression or something and I pick up my prescription. That information might be packaged and sold in a data set. So 
uh, it, it really is a highly, highly unregulated space. The brokers will claim differently and dig up every tiny little thing they have to do. But at the end of the day, you know, 99% of this stuff is unregulated. Yeah. For user, for listeners to this podcast, I'm just sitting here shaking my head constantly with these <laughs> totally outrageous examples. The notion that someone could sell your prescription information and find out you're on Lexapro or something is just, just wild. So how do you think we should be regulating the data broker industry? Is there anything like, you know, comes to mind in, straight off the bat for you that needs to be done? It's a good question, and and I want to be clear to what we uh, on the point of what we just said. Right, this is not to say that every possible data sale is the worst thing on the planet. Right, there are lists out there of avid coffee drinkers and things like that, and maybe there are concerns around that. Right, someone might raise one. I'm not thinking of, but in the scheme of everything we just mentioned, it's certainly not at the top of the list in terms of risk. Selling lists of pregnant women, selling lists of military personnel, elderly people with Alzheimer's, like these are all things people have bought and exploited. And so that really, you know, is the big concern. So, you know, there could be cases where you'd want a lighter regulatory touch, maybe if there are uses around clinical health research or something like that, right? Certainly really important things that we do need to think about and weigh the, the costs and benefits in a policy context. But Generally, I would say we need really, really strong legislation because uh, at the end of the day, there are a couple of little things the military can do on the margins. There's some things the FTC can do and is doing right now around data brokers, but uh, basically the FTC does not have nearly enough money. Uh, I've written about this uh, and others have written about this repeatedly as well where other countries that are 10 times smaller than the US have 10 times as many or more privacy people in their privacy enforcement mm. office. And the entire FTC uh, privacy protection division is about 40 people. So you know that is not good for a country with over 300 million people in it. And first of all, is a massive testament to the people in there who I don't even know. They work 24-7, I guess, like pumping out all these cases. But mm. so so both from an authority standpoint, we need to put constraints on selling location data. I think we should actually ban the sale of location data, I think, except in very narrow cases, maybe there's a foreign intelligence agency use focused abroad or something. It should be completely illegal to sell this on U.S. consumers because the best uh, use case justifications I hear from these companies is, oh, you walk by Starbucks and you get an ad in your browser that you're by Starbucks and here's a coupon. Okay, that's the gain. And the cost is we can go on and on about all this stalking and other stuff that's happened. So yeah, um, yeah so, so we really need you know legal controls on the companies, but we also need resources and that's a congressional issue, right? And you know I'd say repeatedly, look, I I'm not an antitrust expert. I understand that there are political debates and concerns about what the FTC is or is not doing around competition. That's sometimes a stopgap to funding. But for years, the FTC's privacy work has been entirely bipartisan. Uh, even there was an FTC commit Republican commissioner who resigned earlier this year who had issues with a lot of the antitrust stuff. She was a staunch advocate for their privacy work and, in fact, would write opinions saying, yeah, you should have fined this company 10 times as much money. So, you know, on that issue, I think, um, you know, that's the second piece is you have the laws, but, you know, if there's no one to pull over the person speeding through the intersection, so to speak, 
does it even matter? So we need, you know, we need those enforcement resources as well. Yeah. So in the absence of regulation, is there anything you know, listeners to this can be doing to protect themselves from having their data collected and potentially sold? Do you have any advice for folks out there who are maybe a little bit worried after this? Yeah. Well, right to your legislators. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah, complain about this. Yeah. And and I will say, you know, that will have more of an impact now than it ever has because, uh, you know, folks who have been waging this fight for, you know, 50, 60 years uh, are saying, right, we're closer than ever to a, a big privacy law. It still might take years, but, you know, so, so that push is good. There are some websites and services you can subscribe to that will attempt to remove some of your information from these websites. So... Um, you know, me prism, delete me. There's other companies that are involved in this activity that you can, uh, you know, look at to, to try and do a little bit more to protect your own privacy and particularly around your home address and other data like that. And the last piece is look up which state you live in. And if you're a listener in California, you actually have a bunch of rights in that state to mandate that data brokers stop selling certain kinds of data about you. So, mm. Uh, you know, check. There are more and more state privacy laws, right? Congress is stalling, but there's now 14, uh, you know, 12 or 14 or so state privacy laws. You know, if you live in Virginia, Tennessee, um, you know, Colorado, right? The the list goes on. Check out your state privacy law and see, you know, am I able to file an opt out request? And then they're in some cases, you know, required to make sure that they're not selling your data. All right, Justin Sherman, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a, a wonderful, if uh, slightly alarming conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.